Hello, this is Dr. S. Mocker, and welcome to our discussion today of the 1980s. So we are now moving into the decade in which I was born. So as we get a little bit closer to present, it's going to be a little surreal. But I am an old millennial, so born at the beginning of the 80s, so most of this I don't remember. Once we get into the 90s, then it's going to be a little bit more surreal for me to cover this material. Today we're going to talk all about Ronald Reagan. We're going to talk about his presidency. We're going to talk about what we call the Reagan Revolution. In other words, this conservative movement that we talked about last session, starting at the local level, moving up to the state, finally going national with the election of Ronald Reagan, and digging a little bit more into Reagan's policies and discussing a little bit Ronald Reagan's legacies. Because Ronald Reagan is one of those presidents whose influence and image looms very large in the public consciousness, much like John F. Kennedy's, who we talked about earlier, Really, we kind of want to dig into separating kind of the man, the myth, and the legend, if it were. Let's talk a little bit about Ronald Reagan. We're going to talk about economics. We're going to talk about Cold War. And yes, we're going to talk about yuppies. So let's dive in. So last session, we talked about how Ronald Reagan, riding this wave of increasing social and political conservatism in the 70s, will win the election of 1980 over Jimmy Carter, who was a one-term Democratic president who had a lot of similar economic policies to Ronald Reagan, but because he wasn't a Republican, didn't really get a lot of recognition for the things that Reagan will be lauded for. Ronald Reagan is probably best remembered as a president for his economic policies. Remember, that's one of his campaign goals is to fix the American economy, which had been really struggling since the early 1970s with stagnant economic growth or active decline and a rising inflation. Ronald Reagan is going to try to fix that with his economic policies, which we'll talk more about in detail in a second. He also is a diehard cold warrior. Reagan basically comes in wanting to hit the Soviet Union while they're weak. We'll talk a little bit about how the Soviet Union is experiencing some changes and some problems in their economy and social life as well that do make them more vulnerable. So Reagan is right to kind of hit them on that those points of vulnerability. Really, Ronald Reagan, though, demonstrates as a president the importance of messaging. This is where really where politics begins to become much more hyper-partisan. We're going to see that especially at the tail end of today when we talk about the election of 1988. It's going to get a lot more personally ugly. Really, a lot of the origins of the hyper-partisan nature of politics, of talking about like us versus them, really starts to come in in politics in the 1980s, which probably is, it's not attributed just to Reagan, right? But definitely we see it expressed more during Reagan's time in office. But Reagan, for all of his focus on the issues that the conservative movement cared about, was a pragmatist. He recognized that there were some things that were achievable within the conservative movement. So say, for example, more conservative economic policies or less government regulation, but that there were other things that were a little more touchy to accomplish politically, particularly when it comes to a little bit more social policies, in which he recognized that in order to kind of get what he saw as the more important priority, the economy, he would have to compromise with Democrats and others on things that were lower on the priority list for him, like social issues. Reagan's really going to focus heavily on the economy. In fact, the focus of Reagan on the economy and on fixing the American economy is going to give the nickname Reagan 
Reaganomics to his economic policies. Really, what we're going to see during Reagan's time in office is Reagan is going to change around definitions of economic freedom. Throughout U.S. history since 1877, we've been talking about economic freedom, meaning the ability of people to earn a livelihood, right, to achieve at least a basic standard of living, to have some concept of downtime. So usually when we've been talking about economic freedom, we've been more focusing on that definition as coming from the working class, from labor unions, right, equality of condition. Reagan takes economic freedom and spins it in a new direction. He talks about economic freedom as more describing a freedom of business and the economy. So for him, economic freedom is businesses' ability to do business with as little regulation as possible. So that meant deregulating government supervision over the economy, reducing taxes on businesses, and trying to disempower labor unions who businesses often saw as an obstacle to them being able to conduct business the way they wanted to. So in many ways, this is an echo of earlier in the century when we talk about things like liberty of contract, right? The ability of businesses to do business as they see fit, this is a return to the late 1800s and early 1900s conception of economic freedom. Reagan is going to institute a number of tax reforms during his time in office working with Congress. What we're really going to see most drastically in terms of changes in the tax code is changes to the top tax bracket, the people who are earning the most money in American society. In 1981, they were paying half of their income, 50% in taxes, so they were taxed at 50% rate. Now, that's not the highest it had ever been. The highest uh, tax rate on the, the wealthiest income bracket in the United States historically at its highest point was 70%, 70. 50% is still pretty high. By the time Reagan leaves office, it's dropped down to about 28%, which is roughly where it is today in terms of the top income bracket. So high income earners are only paying about less than a third of their income to taxes. And Reagan argued that cutting taxes on the wealthy was necessary to generate economic growth. And this is part of what's called supply side economics. This also gets the popular nickname of trickle-down economics because of how it's supposed to work. So according to supply side or trickle-down economics, if you cut taxes on rich people and if you cut taxes on businesses, the idea was that they would take the savings, right, the money that they're no longer having to pay to taxes and invest it in growing their businesses, in growing business ventures if they're private individuals, and that investing in their companies and their industries would mean more growth economically for those lower down in income status because if they're investing in their company and they're growing, that means more jobs, right? That means more job opportunities for people in the middle and the lower class. So that was the idea, was that people were going to take this money that they had saved and reinvest in the economy and therefore benefit people lower down. They also believed that it would motivate economic growth by giving people more incentive to work hard for their money since they now get to keep more of it. They have to 
to pay less to taxes. Now, these changes aren't going to be effective immediately. No economic change usually has big results overnight. And in fact, we're going to see a little bit of a recession during Reagan's initial year in office from 1981 to 1982. However, after that, we're going to start to see the economy slowly rebound. The inflation rate is going to drop from 13.5% in 1981 to 3.5% in 1988. That's a great news for the American people and the American economy. It means the American economy is more stable. It's no longer flatlining. It's now starting to bounce back. These changes in tax law in the United States and the supply-side economics did result in what many historians have nicknamed the Second Gilded Age, very reminiscent of the time period 100 years ago, the First Gilded Age, in which the top 1% of Americans experienced profound growth in wealth. In the 1980s, the top 1% of Americans owned 40% of all wealth in the United States, which was double the amount of wealth share that they had occupied in 1960. And where are people making their money? Not only are they having to pay less taxes, but there's also this trend of making money through corporate mergers and sales. Now, buying and selling businesses is not in and of itself long-term usually an economic gain. Where the money is being made is by the people who are negotiating those sales and mergers. So in other words, people working in law and finance who are cutting these deals are the ones making a lot of money. Sometimes these sales and mergers make sense. People working in the same industry, right? Similar companies merging or selling off divisions that don't make sense in your broader company portfolio. Sometimes they make a little less logical sense. For example, Nabisco and RJ Reynolds Tobacco Company merged in 1988. And that merger, although it seems a little weird, right? Cookies and tobacco. That merger netted $1 billion in fees. So the people negotiating this merger made a billion dollars. And usually that's where the money is to be made, is in selling and consolidating, not actually running these new companies that had been sold off or acquired. So really just the the act of buying and selling was more profitable than running a lot of these companies. So again, making lots of money for the people owning these companies or the people negotiating these mergers and sales, but that's not translating into stability or profit for the people actually working at those companies that are being sold or merged. People working in law and finance who are benefiting from this business culture in the 1980s get the nickname yuppies which is short for young urban professionals. And yuppies tended to work in areas of the economy like finance, which is still a pretty big sector in the American economy today. Yuppies, rather than investing their money in business or employing other Americans, tended to spend their money on consumer goods. There is a real book called The Yuppie Handbook, which is a work of satire, but it really does exist. You can buy it on any kind of book website like Amazon, satirize the yuppie. It was a field guide for you to kind of spot yuppies and understand them. So it's a satire through sort of an anthropological lens, uh, a guide to yuppies. So one of the things that if you look this cover up on Amazon, the Yuppie Handbook, uh, is that yuppies wore designer clothing from labels like Ralph Lauren, Burberry, Gucci, Coach. They 
patronize companies like Cartier for watches. They played sports like squash, which think of it as kind of like a tennis racquetball. It's in the same family, but again, usually not played by poor people. They bought the latest technology. So Sony Walkmans are super hot in the 1980s as a way to listen to music on headphones portably, right? Not be attached by cords. You can see the yuppie archetype in action if you've ever seen the popular holiday movie National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. If you've ever seen that film, the neighbors, Todd and Margot, are textbook yuppies through their participation in fitness trends, which are continue to be popular in the 80s, all the electronics that they have, the way their house is designed. They're really textbook classes of yuppies. So for people in the American elite, this is a time of great prosperity. But much like the first Gilded Age, that prosperity does not extend all across the board to all social classes. In fact, economics are getting worse for working class Americans because the process of deindustrialization or this loss of manufacturing economy in the United States continues into the 1980s. Deindustrialization meant that the poorest of the working class in the United States had reduced incomes for many people for a long period of time. Factory jobs had been the way forward to economic stability. If you weren't in the lower class, if you didn't have the opportunity to go to college, you could still make a livelihood working in a factory. Now that is no longer available to them. Minorities were disproportionately affected by factory closures as they had only recently started to make gains in manufacturing jobs. And more and more jobs in the 1980s are shifting away from manufacturing type economy to a more service and information driven economy. And in the information driven economy where more of the better paying jobs were, those jobs tended to require higher levels of education, college degrees. So this is also going to factor in too, is that you have to find some way to pay for college. So the reality was, was that the poorest members of the American working class and even those into the lower middle class really saw reduced or stagnated incomes in the 1980s. Ronald Reagan made good on his promise to minimize the power of unions. Nowhere do we see this more than the air traffic controller strike in 1981. 13,000 members of the Air Traffic Controllers Union went on strike. According to federal law, if you work in certain essential occupations, and this includes air traffic controllers, right? They're the ones who make sure that your planes don't collide in midair. Then you're not allowed to strike. Similarly, you can't strike if you're a firefighter, a policeman, etc. So they go on strike in violation of federal law. Reagan had warned them when they were talking about strike that if they went on strike, illegally, they would all be fired. And in fact, that's what happened. All 13,000 union members were fired and Ronald Reagan deployed the military to take over air traffic controller duties at airports across the United States until they could find, train, and hire new air traffic controllers. This wins Reagan a lot of positive uh, press, especially within conservative circles. And we're going to see, due to a combination of declining manufacturing and then public 
pushes against unions like the air traffic controller unions, union membership drops to about 11% outside of government workers, one of the lowest levels that have been in American history. We're also going to see a decline of public services as many state and local governments don't have a lot of revenue, again, because taxes are cut. This is great for the people who don't have to pay as much taxes, but that also means less government funding is available for public services. So we see a spike in the homelessness rate as we see cuts to welfare programs, mental health assistance, public housing programs who have their budget slashed because of this decline in revenue and because oftentimes conservatives disagreed with how to administer these programs. And the unemployment rate at the beginning beginning of the 1980s was still fairly high. In 1981, it was 8.9% for the overall population. But if you look at subsets of the population, for example, African Americans, the unemployment rate was more than double at 20%. While the unemployment rate overall will improve in the 1980s, it will still disproportionately be higher among the working class population than the average general unemployment rate. Now, as I mentioned, Ronald Reagan is a pragmatist. Okay, he's he's going to be real about making sure he can accomplish his highest priorities, which are things like the Cold War and the economy. So for Reagan, his social policies are never going to be as conservative as the social conservatives who elected him probably would have liked. As far as civil rights, Reagan does dial down the level of federal enforcement of making sure that states abide by civil rights laws, but the Supreme Court continues to uphold affirmative action and other pro-civil rights policies and court cases throughout the 1980s. One of the platforms for Reagan's wife, Nancy, as the First Lady, was the Just Say No campaign, which tried to curtail the spread of drugs, particularly crack cocaine is very big problem in urban areas in the 1980s, so this was trying to pitch kids that they shouldn't try drugs, right? Just say no, don't get there. But the Just Say No campaign doesn't really address the reason that drugs are oftentimes a problem or the fact that in arresting and convicting people for possession and sale of drugs, there's a disproportionate representation of minorities in the war on drugs. This had started during Nixon's time in office as the drug problem in American cities increased. What we're going to see is that police are going to spend much more time focusing on drug issues in urban areas and in communities of color than they will in suburban and predominantly whiter areas, meaning that they're going after the people consuming, say, crack cocaine, which is a lower class drug, than they are white people shooting up heroin or having the powdered cocaine. So that's going to mean, and we're going to talk about this more as we get into the 90s and the early 2000s, that the prison population in the United States is going to start to become much more heavily populated by minorities disproportionately to the percentages in the general population. Now, Reagan does cut some funding to social programs like food stamps and low-income housing, but he knows that there are some things that really wouldn't fly. For example, Reagan will not make cuts to Medicare, Medicaid, or Social Security, which greatly disappoints a lot of small government conservatives, and he also is not as conservative in his attitudes towards women as many social conservatives had hoped 
hoped for either. Now let's talk about Reagan's foreign policy, which aside from his economic focus was his highest priority. Reagan, as I mentioned, really wanted to hasten the end of the Cold War, and he saw his moment because the Soviet Union was struggling. So Reagan decided that one of the best ways to defeat the Soviet Union was simply to bankrupt them. And so Reagan supported drastic increases in military spending because he knew that the Soviet Union would be forced to match this American military buildup and spend money they really couldn't afford to to do this. One of the proposals that Reagan has in this buildup of military technology is an initiative that is dubbed Star Wars, or the Strategic Defense Initiative. People dubbed it Star Wars because they argued that it was a work of science fiction, that the technology to create such a proposal did not exist. Basically, what Reagan wanted to do was to develop technology that would be designed to intercept and destroy missiles from space. Again, doesn't really exist. When he first proposes this in 1983, coincidentally, the same year Return of the Jedi, an actual Star Wars movie comes out. But the the more important thing in proposing this, even though, again, it's not technologically possible when he proposes this, is the fact that this feeds into this Cold War notion of rhetoric and heavy military buildup. Again, it doesn't necessarily have to be realistic to ruffle the feathers of the Soviet Union. It's just enough that you're talking about this thing that could be considered a military buildup, even if you can't practically build it. The United States is going to engage in some military intervention throughout the 1980s in Grenada, a small island in the Caribbean. They will send in the military to overthrow a pro-Cuban government, again under the idea of containment. The United States is briefly involved in Lebanon in a civil war that breaks out between Christian government and Muslim insurgents. However, when a bombing in Lebanon killed 241 American servicemen stationed there, the public will to sustain involvement in Lebanon was not there. There's still this very fresh memory of the Vietnam War. And again, that Vietnam syndrome we talked about, right? That reluctance to really deploy troops. So once you have that kind of catastrophic bombing initially, American popular opinion turns against getting involved in Lebanon and we end up withdrawing our troops there. Now, one of the things that Reagan is going to do is he's going to end Carter's policy of privileging human rights. And Reagan's going to go back to the tradition within the Cold War of American presidents and administrations focusing on who's anti-communist and not so much caring about their human rights record. Partly this is inspired by a 1979 essay by Jean Kirkpatrick in which she argued that America's best foreign policy interests lay in opposing totalitarian communists but being willing to prop up authoritarian but non-communist regimes. So having a dictator is okay if he's not communist. We can deal with that, right? So again, the priority is going to be focusing on nations that are very much anti-communist, not whether they are democracies. And Kirkpatrick is actually going to be named ambassador to the United Nations by Reagan. So because of this shift 
in policy, the United States will continue to ignore human rights abuses in places like Guatemala, in which this actually does classify as a genocide against Mayan people in the 1980s, and also in El Salvador. But really, the American interventionist strategy by Reagan is going to become most challenged when we're talking about the Iran-Contra scandal. So when Reagan came into office in 1981, and he decided that human rights was no longer going to be the sort of top priority that we were going to return back to supporting anti-communist regimes, this does have an immediate policy change in Latin America, particularly in Nicaragua. The United States had last been heavily involved in Nicaragua back in the 1930s when we had sent in troops to try to oppose a more radical government, which had resulted in the Somoza family gaining control after they assassinated General Augusto Cesar Sandino. So the Somoza family had been ruling Nicaragua for decades with an iron fist, and they were being increasingly opposed by a communist group calling themselves the Sandinistas after the murdered Sandino. Reagan opposed the Sandinistas when they gained power in Nicaragua and began to block aid and place an economic boycott on the country. He believes that with the Sandinistas ascendant in power in Nicaragua, that they would support other communist rebels across Latin America. And again, this would lead to a domino effect of new communist nations and therefore would be a failure of containment. So by 1983, Reagan's administration had increased both money and military supplies to a group called the Contras, who had been trained by the CIA to oppose and overthrow the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. So again, we're returning to a policy of regime change that we had seen earlier in the Cold War. However, Congress was very disturbed by the escalating amount of aid. And in 1984, they placed a ban on military aid to the Contras, making it illegal to continue to fund them. However, behind the scenes, Reagan's administration violated the terms of the ban starting in 1986 by secretly selling weapons to Iran and then taking the cash from those weapon sales and funding it to the Contras. This scandal breaks when investigative journalists find out about these illegal sales to Iran to bankroll the Contras, again, contrary to federal law, in 1986 and 1987. And this leads to a nationwide scandal. Oliver North, who at this time is in the military and is one of the sort of people focused on in these trials, argues that, you know, he was told to do this, right? He was simply following orders because there was a lot of willful destruction of evidence. In the end, 11 people were convicted of perjury, lying under oath, or destroying evidence. But nobody was convicted for breaking federal law, and nobody was impeached for what technically was a crime of treason. So this is kind of interesting, is that Oliver North becomes sort of the fall guy for this. We don't seriously see Congress going after Reagan or his vice president, George H.W. Bush, over the Iran-Contra scandal. And don't feel too bad for Oliver North. He's had a very interesting career as a political pundit since this point. But basically, again, because so much evidence 
that was required to secure more serious convictions had been destroyed on purpose. There was very little that could be done otherwise in the Iran-Contra scandal. Reagan's primary focus, again, even though he is getting very deeply involved in places like Nicaragua, is in defeating the Soviet Union in the Cold War. During his second term in office, the counterpart that he has in the Soviet Union is Mikhail Gorbachev. Gorbachev comes to power in a time of a teetering Soviet economy. The Helsinki Accords that have been passed during the 1970s which required communist nations to grant more civil liberties to their people were also creating some unrest in the population. So what Gorbachev did when he came into office is he basically talked about embracing reforms to strengthen the Soviet Union. And he proposed two reforms, perestroika and glasnost. So perestroika means restructuring. What Gorbachev meant by this was that he was going to revamp the Soviet economy to allow elements of capitalism, but not go completely capitalist, right? We're still a communist state. And he felt like this would address some of the economic problems of the Soviet Union and some of the demands by the Soviet people for more consumer products. Glasnost means openness. So here Gorbachev is saying we're willing to allow more freedom of expression, more freedom of the press so that we can have a more productive conversation about this future of the Soviet Union. In reality this is just going to open the floodgates of complaints for people who had lived under Soviet rule. One of the things after Gorbachev comes into office that starts to happen is we start to see a better working relationship between the Soviet Union and the United States as Gorbachev and Reagan will meet repeatedly to talk about de-escalating the Cold War. It worked for both Reagan and Gorbachev to decrease military spending, right, that affected their budgets. And a series of talks held between 1985 and 1987 helped to make significant progress, reducing the amount of nuclear missiles in Soviet and American stockpiles, and also being the catalyst for the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan in the late 80s. Looking at Ronald Reagan and discussing again, kind of trying to tease out the person, the historical person, and then kind of the, the mythology, the, the legendary nature of Reagan is important in understanding his legacy. Reagan does succeed in off, his time in office in changing definitions of freedom and in emphasizing the importance to both sides of the aisle of political messaging. Under Reagan, taxes become sort of demonized as government theft, not citizens contributing money for public services like education, but again, kind of the government literally stealing money from your pocketbook. The word liberal becomes a slur in a conservative political environment. There's lots of conversations about big government and how big government is bad, again, driven by the conservative movement. And there's lots of depictions of people on welfare as being mooching off of the government and taking government handouts. Again, regardless of, uh, there's no discussion also happening at the same time of the economic conditions that might be driving people onto welfare. The economy becomes the focus of both political parties during the 80s. So the Democrats are finally getting on board. They're being a little reluctant, a little dragging their feet in the 1970s to focus on economic issues 
issues. And let's talk a little bit about the impact of supply-side economics, so Reagan's trickle-down theories. Like I mentioned earlier, supply-side economics is designed to encourage business and wealthy individuals to invest and grow companies, and that people would work harder for their income if they got to keep more of it. But many Americans actually lost jobs or earnings in the 1980s because businesses, rather than invest in their growth, sought to aggressively make short-term profits by consolidating and selling. And therefore, people who are in the elite are make, doing more with their money by buying consumer products, like we saw with the upper middle, the upper class, upper middle class, the yuppies, buying consumer products and not necessarily taking that savings and investing it in business development or growth. The deregulation of certain industries while saving money in the short term will eventually stick consumers with a bill. The Federal Savings and Loan Insurance Corporation ended up having to be bailed out to the tune of $250 billion by the federal government, a cost that was passed on to taxpayers. Defense spending increases at the same time that taxes were being cut meant that we had a far higher level of debt. The national debt at the time Reagan left office in early 1989 was at $2.7 trillion, which was three times the amount it had been when Reagan entered office. Reagan blamed Congress for the deficit, arguing that Congress couldn't balance the budget and you know, not really talking about how difficult it is to maintain a budget when you have declining income but increased spending. So trickle-down economics don't work as well as proposed because businesses and and rich people are not doing what they're supposed to be doing with that money, which is invest in general economic growth and new business. The federal government is increasingly in debt, right, which is not what you want if you're a small government conservative. But when it comes to focusing on the Cold War, Reagan did, in fact, help hasten the end of the Cold War. Now, not single-handedly, but definitely his strategy of spend, spend, spend on the military and talk about buildup did certainly help. Although Gorbachev, being more reform-minded and instituting reforms that kind of opened the door to protest publicly in the Soviet Union also helped a lot as well. Well, although the Soviet Union will not end up definitively dying off until 1991, which is after Reagan has left office, he certainly does a lot to hasten the end of the Cold War. So one of the things I like to ask is looking at Reagan, again, as a person, as a president, right, his actual policies, his administration, and asking the question, do you think Ronald Reagan would be electable today? So in other words, do you think he would still be popular in the modern Republican Party, right? Because he was a Republican. And I think the answer, you could argue either way. You could say, yes, he would certainly be popular. You could also make arguments that his unwillingness to be very socially conservative might also hurt him in a general election or a Republican primary today. But certainly a lot of Reagan's focus on the economy and on American foreign policy, I think, would be very popular today. Reagan is term limited to two terms in office because we now have the constitutional amendment, right, that limits presidents 
two terms, and Regan was already starting to show signs of suffering from Alzheimer's, definitely in his second term of office, which actually did provoke some conversations about presidential succession under the terms of the 25th Amendment, though never seriously pursued. And in 1988, his vice president, George H.W. Bush, runs as the Republican nominee against the Democrat Michael Dukakis. As I mentioned, the partisan nature of politics that's percolating in the 1980s becomes much more evident in the election of 88. Very ugly campaigning, much more focus on personal issues rather than general campaign or election platforms. Very personally, again, dismissive. And Bush is elected by a pretty healthy margin. If you look at the Electoral College map, it's a sea of Republican red like it was in the elections of 1980 and 1984. But while Bush will be elected to the presidency to the White House by a fairly healthy margin, Congress will remain controlled by Democrats. So as we start to enter the end of the 1980s, we're going to find George H.W. Bush, or Bush Sr., since we have another Bush we'll talk about on this podcast, George H.W. Bush is going to inherit a growing economy, a growing national government deficit, but a growing economy. And he's also going to inherit a lot of the Cold War policies of Reagan. And it's actually going to be the elder Bush that's in office when the Soviet Union finally collapses. And so even though George H.W. Bush, spoiler alert, only served one term in office. He is going to be instrumentally important in trying to figure out what the new normal is after the Cold War finally ends. We'll talk about that more next time. Until next time, I'm Dr. S. Mocker.